Good evening, I'm Darcy. Welcome to Real Bites, the podcast where we discuss filmmaking and classic films in bite-sized episodes. This week's topic is the 1925 version of The Phantom of the Opera, directed by Rupert Julian and starring Lon Chaney, Mary Philbin, and Norman Kelly. Stay tuned to hear about sewage boats, mob chases, and proper piano technique. In case you haven't seen the film, read the book, Phantom of the Opera is about a disfigured composer who lives hidden inside this theater. Lon Chaney, who plays the Phantom, was known for his talents with makeup, and this film is a really good example of that because the Phantom is quite disturbing. He looks kind of like a skeleton. He did something with his nose, he pulled up his eyelids. The reason for why the Phantom is disfigured is never explained, which kind of leads you to assume he was born this way, at least in this version of the story, and this freak of nature grotesque appeal was pretty popular in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, so I suppose audiences then would have been more receptive to it. But at the same time, do we care? This is part of the backstory which doesn't really matter to me in the grand scheme of the film. It's not a make or break kind of thing, it's just, I don't know, I wonder why they don't explain that. Maybe, maybe that's because it doesn't matter, maybe I just answered my own question. The 1925 version is the second adaptation to film, but the first one, was, which was German, was lost. So this is the oldest surviving version. Probably the most iconic visual when people think of Phantom of the Opera is the massive chandelier falling in the theater. And in this film, it's quite anticlimactic. It kind of just falls, life goes on. It's not really emphasized as it usually is with like close-up shots of it or green time. <laughs> There's also those canal boat scenes, which are quite iconic to the Phantom of the Opera, where he goes to visit his uh, his I don't know his sewage shack. I think I would <laughs> I would call it. I love how when he's taking Christine over on the boat, her cape just kind of drags through the sewage. Anything that looked pretty, I guess. In this 1925 version, the reveal of the Phantom's face is emphasized heavily. So she takes off his mask, and then it goes back and forth between him and her for a solid, I would say, like, minute or two. There's just her being surprised, him being scary. She's surprised, he's scary. Back and forth like that. It was probably because of Lon Chaney's makeup when I come to think of it now, but that was the moment they chose to emphasize over, you know, over the chandelier. It was surprising to me because I wasn't expecting it to go on that long. I was like, okay, you got the shot, you got the reaction, that's enough, we get the point. But no, they just they just kept going. The score of the film is really gorgeous, and I know silent films have different scores depending on what version you watch, but the one I saw was really nice. The Phantom's a musician himself, actually, in the story. He plays the piano. No, no, the organ. He plays the organ. We're cultured here. And he does really dramatic hand gestures when he plays. So. If you're interested in being a concert pianist or a phantom living in under a theater, then this is the movie for you. There's also this bizarre scene where the phantom asks Christine to make a deal with him, I think to marry, marry him or something, and instead of asking her to say yes or no, he puts two statues on the 
table and he's like turn over the one like the scorpion means yes and the other thing means no and she slowly picks up the scorpion and she turns it 180 degrees they took the show don't tell rule of filmmaking a bit too seriously here they were like okay we're gonna <laughs> she can't just say yes we're gonna we're gonna do the statue thing imagine if this is how we all signed contracts turning over scorpions the film finishes pretty much exactly how you'd expect it with the classic witch hunt and in this case it's the mob chasing the phantom with torches and then they throw him into the water they kill him the acting in the film is very over the top which is common for these silent films and i find it hilarious the way the phantom walks he often starts off with a dramatic hand gesture and then shuffles off on his tippy toes in the way he gestures i was really impressed with the cinematography especially the version i watched which was tinted so it was tinted red, green, or blue, depending on the scene, and sometimes they even combine them. Often now when we see stills or promotional images of classic films, we see them in only black and white, literally, <laughs> the black and white colored, which wasn't the case. Even some of the most famous horror films like Nosferatu, they had tints which would distinguish night and day or scene changes. One of my favorite scenes in this film is when Christine and her boyfriend Raoul are on the roof and they're sat next to a statue and then the phantom climbs the statue behind them. Besides the dramatic irony and suspense, the visuals are really striking because everything is tinted blue except the phantom's cape, which is red, and it's blowing in the wind. Also the masquerade ball scene, it's layered with tints of red, green, and blue and it's a nice surprise in the film because you, you, wouldn't, you don't expect to see almost, it, it gives almost the illusion of colored film, which, which is really unexpected because up till then all the scenes were either one color or the other. There wasn't a mix of them and now here it looks all these like tiny little flecks of color. Now for the fun part, let's talk about trivia. Like we mentioned, Lon Chaney designed his own makeup and he was talented at it. Good for him. Apparently the 1910 novel this was based on wasn't popular at first, wasn't considered some kind of great literature, which I'm not surprised about. And the films are, the film adaptations are what garnered international recognition for the story, which is pretty iconic today. In the original ending, the phantom dies of heartbreak at his organ. And in this one, to pander to popular appeal, they changed the ending to the phantom being chased by a mob. I think they actually shot the original ending, but then they changed it to this one because the audience didn't like it. And Lon Chaney was unhappy with the change. Like many silent horror films, I found it was good for a laugh. I didn't expect the cinematography to be so pretty, especially when Le Deux, the policemen, are going down into the dungeons. The lighting and the composition are really, really pretty. It's worth watching just that sequence. If you're gonna watch any part of it, watch them going down into the dungeons and the phantom coming out from the darkness. Or his assistant? I think the phantom actually has a secretary in this one. Um, <laughs> like many silent horror films, I found it was good for a laugh. And not just because of the secretary. There was a couple times where I could appreciate the newfound comedic aspects of it, which probably weren't considered funny back then, but they are to me now. Like at one point, Raoul and the policeman Lede are locked in a swelteringly hot room. So they take off their clothes to cool down, 
and they're dying, except they don't take off their shirts because this is 1925. I love how the Phantom doesn't say his name at the beginning, he doesn't refuses to tell her his name, and then proceeds to refer to himself as Eric for the rest of the film. He doesn't need a last name because somehow all the characters know Eric. Like, they don't know who the Phantom is, but when you mention Eric, they're like, oh yeah, Eric. I know who Eric is. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was pretty funny. Again, they've obviously skipped out on some backstory there, but the lack of it makes it even better. As a huge Harry Potter fan, I found quite a few similarities between the Phantom of the Opera story and the Chamber of Secrets, the second Harry Potter book. Things like opening up the chamber, the secret way to get into it, and having voices coming from the walls, and obviously a finale of a girl being kidnapped to a chamber, dragged there by the monster. That's really similar. So I wonder if J.K. Rowling took some inspiration from the plot of The Phantom of the Opera. So yeah, I've seen two versions of this film in full. This one and the Jared Butler one. Gerard Butler? How do you say his name? I don't know. But from what I can tell, the story has changed to become more Christine-centric. So her role has expanded over the years. That's an interesting choice because, you know, the Phantom is really the big questionable, you know, entity. Christine is more of a damsel in distress type character at first, but that's all I have right now on the Phantom of the Opera. You've been listening to Real Bites, the podcast where we discuss classic films and bite-sized episodes. This podcast is free to listen to, and it's available on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and more. Find all the links at realbites.car.co, spelled R-E-E-L-B-I-T-E-S dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. Thank you for listening.